let's visit a place called Megiddo, uh, familiar to a number of you. Uh, it's a interesting city in the northern part of Israel, just about 15 miles south of Haifa. And it is located in an oval-shaped valley called the Jezreel Valley. Megiddo is actually a tell or a hill, not natural, man-made. It's a mound containing layers of previous civilizations, one built on top of the other. And so if you visited Megiddo today, you would be on a mound, on a hill. It is a tell. And it is, in fact, one of the largest in all of Israel. It covers an area of about 15 acres. And archaeologists have uh, uh, defined a- at least 26 different layers of civilization, you see. So, so the earliest would be on the bottom, and then subsequent cities are built right on top of it. Uh, which begs the question, why such interest in settlement here in the Jezreel Valley at this place we know to be Megiddo. It's because of its intensely strategic location. Uh, It was positioned at a pass, uh, one of the only passes into the Jezreel Valley. And it guarded something called the Via Maris, or the way to the sea. And that is an ancient highway, you can follow it even today. Uh, on which merchants from all over and even armies would travel uh, from Egypt all the way north to Mesopotamia. And so invading armies would have to go by the walls and gates uh, of Megiddo on their way to conquest. And so whoever controlled this place, Megiddo, uh, was really in the power position. So it came to be a fortified city uh, early on in human history. Its earliest inhabitants that we know of, being a people group you're familiar with, they're called the Canaanites. And the Canaanites established here at Megiddo a major religious center. In fact, archaeologists have found a most interesting altar on which animals and probably even living humans were offered up in sacrifice. It's a large circular platform, and I think if you look carefully, you'll see depictions of it on the screen in front of you. And so you could see it even today, and that altar, that uh, leveled circular altar is over 5,000 years old. When the Lord uh, led Israel into the land, this uh, allotment of land was given to the tribe of Manasseh. We call him Manasseh. But Manasseh failed in taking unobstructed possession of the land. And in fact, it wasn't until the time of King David much later uh, when the Israelites uh, actually uh, made Megiddo under their control. And it was David's son, Solomon, you know of him, who really fortified Megiddo. He enlarged the city and he built a uh, circular wall all around the precincts of the city. And in it, he put a major gate complex. And when you go to Megiddo today, you're obligated to walk through that very gate, which was built by King Solomon centuries ago. Uh, This place became one of his... uh, 
three chariot cities, you see, he had a strong strategic interest in guarding the Via Maris, or the way to the sea. After his death, there was an Egyptian leader named Shishak, and he's uh, mentioned in the Bible, and he destroyed the city of Megiddo. After him, there was a Hebrew king named Ahab who came and took it back, and so he rebuilt the city. One of the most striking finds there today is a um, an underground water system which King Ahab constructed. And it consists of an amazing vertical shaft right through the bedrock. Remember, this is before uh, the time of all of the wonderful equipment which we have. Uh, picks and shovels and all the rest. I mean, they dug right through the bedrock rock and went down about 120 feet and they then connected with a tunnel uh, which they dug out from both ends hoping to meet in the middle. Uh, They missed by about a foot which isn't bad you know in those days and the tunnel extends 250, 15 feet long. If you go there and you're stout of heart you could walk down the vertical shaft and then you could find your way in this tunnel and you could walk its full length. In fact, there's still water in it from the time of King Ahab. So that the tunnel extends 215 feet and then it connects outside the city walls with a spring of water which it taps into. This was a marvelous contribution if you think about it because prior to King Ahab, the people when they needed water, when they got thirsty, they would have to leave the safety of this walled city they would have to go beyond the walls out into this naturally occurring spring in order to avail themselves of water. But because of the construction of this marvelous uh, underground water system, the spring of water flowed into it so that the people could remain in their protected walled environment. So this is like one of your first ancient gated communities. So this was quite a contribution. Megiddo has been the site of many, many uh, military battles and conflicts throughout history. In fact, uh, some historians are of the opinion that more battles were fought in this locale than probably in any other location in the entire world. Uh, One of the more famous uh, of these battles took place uh, in the 15th century before the time of Christ. So we are talking ancient, ancient history. And it involved the Egyptians and the original residents of the land, the Canaanites. The Egyptian ruler at the time was someone called Thutmose III. And there's an inscription credited to him. It was found, it's in hieroglyphics, and it was found at the temple of the ancient Egyptian god Ammon in a place called Karnak, and I want to read it to you just because it's fascinating to me that there's a historical record pertaining to the place uh, under our study tonight, written in hieroglyphics thousands and thousands of years ago by Thutmose III. Here's what it says. His majesty, Thutmose III, speaks to his generals, that wretched enemy, the Canaanites, has come and has entered into Megiddo. Here it is in ancient Egyptian records. 
He is there at this moment. He has gathered to him the princes of every foreign country that had been loyal previously to Egypt. Then his majesty issued forth at the head of his army. Thereupon his majesty prevailed over them at the head of his army. Then they saw his majesty prevailing over them, and they fled headlong to Megiddo with faces of fear. They abandoned their horses and their chariots of gold and silver. So that's an inscribed record in existence down to this very day of one of the many ancient battles fought at this very side. Since then, of course... There have been many others. The estimate is about 100, extending even into modern times. And as an example, uh, in September of 1918, so that would place it in World War I, British General Edmund Allenby led the Allied troops in a fierce battle right here at Megiddo and in the Jezreel Valley against the Ottoman Turks. Someone thereafter said World War I will in fact be the war to end all wars. That's not exactly accurate. Sadly, many have followed World War I. No, World War I was not the war to end all wars, but I tell you there will be such a war. There will be such a conflict, and it will take place right here at this place in the Jezreel Valley, in the southern part of the Jezreel Valley, right there at Megiddo. How do I know this? Because a good God told us about it in advance. And he told us about it in more than one place. Let me direct your attention only to one for tonight. Revelation chapter 16, just a few verses, Revelation 16. I love to read this text uh, when on prior occasions we have been in Israel and to this site, Megiddo. Tells us about the future. Revelation chapter 16, and let's take a look at verse 12. And the sixth angel, it says, poured out his bowl... Upon the great river, the Euphrates, what has preceded have been a series of trumpet judgments. And now this is the sixth of a new series of judgments called the bowl judgments. Trumpets, bowls, they represent the outpouring of the wrath of a, of a holy and understandably offended God against a world in rebellion against him. If you think you get a little upset, come on. God is holy inherently and by nature and unholiness is a great offense to him. Thank him. He's gracious and has a means of forgiveness. But for those who say thank you, but no thank you, there awaits nothing but the outpouring of God's wrath. Not my words, his through uh, the Apostle John, right here, Revelation 16, verse 12. So the angel will pour out this sixth in the series of bold judgments upon the great river. It's the Euphrates. Folks, it's the same Euphrates which we read about almost every day now because it's about 1,800 miles long. It starts in uh, Turkey and it pours out into the Persian Gulf, uh, Gulf after flowing through what country? 
Iraq were invested there, like it or not, have been for the last number of years. And so the Euphrates and the Tigris, these two rivers mentioned way back in the book of Genesis, will crisscross, they pour out together as they, their waters mingle into the Persian Gulf. And as mighty as is this 1,800-mile-long river Euphrates, I tell you, uh, as a result of the sixth bold judgment, its water was dried up. John saw it. He speaks about it as if it's past tense. That's how sure of accomplishment it will be. The river Euphrates, its waters will be dried up. Why? So that the way might be prepared for kings from the east. I love to speculate about who they are, but not tonight. (laughs) You decide. And I saw, you see, the book of Revelation is a vision. You know, it's not revelations. We don't call it the book of revelations. It's one made up of many given to John. It's the book. It's the apocalypse. It's singular. It's revelation. I saw coming out of the mouth. Count how many personages are mentioned here. Out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. How many are we talking about? Three. Three. I I saw, said John, coming out of the mouths of these three, three unclean spirits like frogs. Well, I'll tell you who these three are. And for more information, you consult a prior series, which uh, many of us have done here on the book of Revelation in end times. I just want to do kind of a quick survey of the text tonight. I'll tell you who these three are, in my opinion. Humble, yet accurate opinion. It is. the. Um, you know what you have here in verse 13 is a counterfeit trinity. You know what the real trinity is? It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I love that I don't understand it. I am persuaded because of my lack of understanding that God is bigger than me. And that's good because I don't want to worship someone my size. I want to worship this infinite, incomprehensible God. And so he has manifested. We don't worship three gods. We worship one. But he's manifested himself in three persons. And you know what the number one proofs of the Trinity is? That Satan has sought to counterfeit it. You see, he's not a creator. There's only one creator. And so, because he wants to usurp the role of the creator, he counterfeits what the creator has created. And so, here's the counterfeit trinity. You have the dragon. If you study Revelation, you find out that's Satan, a counterfeit of the father. Then you have the beast. That's the Antichrist, who is a counterfeit of the son. And then you have the false prophet, who is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. And out of their mouth, the text says, three unclean spirits pour forth like frogs. They're not frogs. They're like frogs. Why this uh, metaphor of a frog? Uh, Well, because in Hebrew tradition, we don't eat frogs. They're unkosher. They're outlawed according to the book of Leviticus. Um, One time I preached this to my wonderful friends in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And man, that was tough. (laughs) By the way, we're not under these dietary laws anymore, so enjoy your frog's legs. Not a problem. 
But I'm just trying to tell you, this is a very fit metaphor, because Jews would have gone, what? Trafe, are you kidding me? We're not eating that stuff. We'll get defiled. So it's a symbol of uncleanness and defilement and corruption. And you don't have to guess, well, then if they're not real frogs, who are they? Well, the answer is given graciously by the author of the text, Almighty God. Verse 14, they are spirits. I didn't make that up. It says right there, they are spirits of demons. Do you know some people don't believe demons exist? Boy, is Satan happy. Can I tell you why I believe demons exist? Because the same book that tells me about the Savior tells me about demons. You cannot go shopping in the Bible. Oh, I like this. This is tasty to me. Oh, this is delightful. Oh, here's another promise I'm going to put in my shopping bag. No, it also tells us about demons. There it is. For they are spirits of demons, and they perform signs. Sure, they're attention getters. They perform signs which go out to who? The kings of the whole world. World governmental political leaders. Demonic entities perform signs and wonders so as to deceive those who wish to be deceived. I'm telling you, if you want to be fooled, you will succeed. If you want to know the truth, uh, the God of all truth will show you truth. That's the way it is. So, so, so they, they perform these signs, they deceive the kings of the whole world. In what specific uh, direction? Well, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. How in the world? Could the world's leaders all be provoked, as we will find out, uh, to gather together against the singular target of, pardon the expression, dinky little Israel? I mean, it's dinkified, folks. There ain't like nothing to it. Have you been to New Jersey? It's about the same size as Israel. You can go from Dan to Beersheba in an easy one day's ride. I mean, you're going to be stuck in traffic on 45 for a longer period of time than it can take you to go from north to south in little old dinky Israel. So I want to know, why do the world's political leaders rally together to go against Israel? But now I know why. It's the croaking of the frogs. They just croak these leaders into it. And so, demonically, uh, the world's leaders are persuaded, are deceived, persuaded that Israel is the enemy. This dinky little piece of real estate, there's nothing to it, folks. <laughs> Must be taken. It's a demonic kind of a thing. But, look, you should know of demons. You should believe in their existence, but you ought not be terrified by them. I'll tell you why. Because even this whole crusade, inaugurated and authored by demonic entities, is still labeled, is it not? The war of the great day of God, the Almighty. You know what this tells me? It tells me that sovereign God is so sovereign, is so in control, that he could even make uses of these forces of evil to bring judgment 
upon these forces of evil. Oh, Satan, the pretender to the throne, through his evil entities, thinks he's calling the shots. He could maybe influence some of the world's human leaders, but he cannot influence the most high God who sits on the throne. You ought to be sure he's the one you're following, you see. You ought to go straight to the top. You ought to bypass these pretenders to the throne. You don't want to give your life to a counterfeit when you could bow down before the real deal, the genuine article, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's seated on the throne. He has the capacity to make this thing called the war of the great day. Of God Almighty. And verse 16. They gathered, they, the armies of the world, gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Or Armageddon. Armageddon. You know what it means? The hill or the mount of Megiddo. This place under study tonight is the site of the last battle, Harmageddon. The croaking demonic frogs deceive the world's leaders to come, gather their armies together, and form up at this place the final battle, the last battle. The war of the day of the great God Almighty will take place right here at this place under our consideration tonight. But it's not just a single battle, Armageddon. That's a misunderstanding. It's actually a much more diverse military campaign. It consists not of a singular battle. It consists of several phases at several locales throughout the land of Israel. So what's happening here in the Jezreel Valley at Megiddo is that it becomes a staging area only, a staging area only for the armies of the world. And it can handle it because the Jezreel Valley, you can go there today and see it. It's beautiful. It's agricultural and it's a little hard to imagine what's going to happen there, but it's going to happen there. It's 14 miles wide and it's 20 miles long. Napoleon, the great military leader who was there, made the statement, that the Jezreel Valley is the most ideal staging area for battle on earth. And so the armies of the world will come here. They'll gather here. They'll come from the east and from the north and all over the place. You fill in the blanks, if you will. And they'll gather here, but the bulk of the fighting will not take place here. It will take place at other places throughout the land of Israel. So from this staging area near the hill of Megiddo in the Jezreel Valley, the forces of the world will advance. Would you care to guess in what direction? Now, this is in the north of Israel. If they're going to simply form up here to campaign elsewhere, what direction do you think they're going to travel in? Why south? You got it, my Gentile friends. They're going south to Jerusalem. It's 55 miles away. Do you know why they're going there? Because the Lord Jesus will be worshipped from a reconstructed temple there. 
Say what you want to about Satan, but he's a student of the Bible. He read it. He found out what's going to happen and how the Lord will establish himself there in Jerusalem and how people from all over the world will go up to Jerusalem to worship him. And he can't stand it. You remember the root of the fall as you read about it in Isaiah and so on. I will be like the Most High. Everything that is the prerogative of the one true God, Satan wants. So he wants worship from Jerusalem. So he's got to get Jerusalem. So he has his frog-like demons stir up the world's leaders to have an irrational preoccupation with Jerusalem. I'm telling you down to this very day, in our very day, it's an irrational preoccupation with Jerusalem. There are in excess of 20 oil-rich nations, Arab nations, surrounding dinkified little Israel. Why don't you focus your attention on one of those? Did you ever look at a map, see the size of Jordan or Saudi Arabia, one of these places? You can fit about nine bazillion Israels in one of them. Who cares about Israel? There's nothing to it, I'm telling you. At one point, it's nine miles across. Give me a break. It's from here to Pearland. What? Don't you see you can't explain the irrationality in geopolitical terms? You can only explain it in terms of cosmic, behind-the-scenes spiritual terms. There is a supernatural thing going on. You see, Satan wants Jerusalem, but Savior will get it. He will have it. That conflict is what explains the intense and irrational preoccupation with Israel and Jerusalem even today. But God has his prophet Zechariah say, chapter 12, verse 9, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Hey, I'm not a political guy, but I really want to be a biblical guy. And that's why I support Israel's right to the land. And you say, of course, you're a Jewish guy. Yeah, but that still doesn't make my support for Israel wrong. <laughs> it's plenty biblical. In that day, I, says God, will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I feel like saying, well, God, it won't be me. I'm not going to be with them. I'm on your side. And I would support Israel if I was you, if you want to be on the right side. Well, verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple. See, it will be rebuilt. Uh, came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Have you heard those words before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, once before, these very words were uttered in this land. These were the very words of Messiah Jesus, which he uttered from the cross. He uttered these words, don't you see, as God finished his work of redemption. And he will utter these very same words when God finishes his work of judgment. 
God chose this land, this little dinky parcel of real estate. He chose this land for two major events, and both involved the shedding of blood. Blood was shed on Mount Calvary, and blood will be shed on Mount Megiddo. In one case, there was the blood of forgiveness. In the one to come, however, there will be the blood of judgment. And it's that very point that leads me to this life lesson from this place we have visited, Megiddo. The blood of forgiveness or the blood of judgment? Which will it be for you? What is your final answer? There's no third option. Sadly, some have mocked the blood of forgiveness and have thereby invited upon themselves the blood of judgment. Uh, My wife alerted me to an article recently in USA Today, and uh, it recorded a disturbing event which took place on September 30th, just recently, in uh, our beloved capital, Washington, D.C. And the event was to mark the first ever International Blasphemy Day, Washington, D.C. International Blasphemy Day. And as part of the celebration, Jesus, who came to offer his own blood of forgiveness for wretched people like you and me, what they did on Blasphemy Day Um, is that they depicted him in a blasphemous way with dripping red uh, nail polish on his feet and hands as uh, the artist's deliberate attempt to mock the Lord's wounds from which flowed the blood of forgiveness. Uh, This work of art was entitled, Jesus Does His Nails. One of the coordinators of Blasphemy Day said, we're not seeking to offend, but if in the course of dialogue and debate people become offended, that's not an issue for us. He's right. What people think ought not be the major issue for you. Did I offend you? Did I not offend you? That's not the big deal. You know what the big deal is? It offends God. He sends his only begotten son. Only begotten means one of a kind, irreplaceable. It's not that the father said, I have a spare. Here's my only begotten son. You know who he is? He's the son with whom I am well pleased. I have not been well pleased with you and you and you and you and me. But I am well pleased with this one. Because he lives to be in unobstructed harmony with me. He knows no sin. I know no sin. He's the exact representation of my nature. You're not. He is. But I care for you nonetheless. 
I love you nonetheless. I am moved to do something for you because you can't do it for yourself. And so the father said, will you go, my son? For those who are attending the International Blasphemy Day, would you go, my son, even to those who are mocking uh, your sacrifice and your shed blood? Would you go and offer them the way out anyway? This is a grotesque uh, denial of the Lord Jesus' International Blasphemy Day. But I'm not sure there are gradations of rejection of him. You either accept him or you reject him. Now, your rejection of him may be a little more sophisticated, a little more palatable. But you end up in the same place. You've offended God the Father. I'm a dad. How you respond to my kids affects how I respond to you. Hurt them? I don't like you. Help them? I love you. How we respond to the Son, the only begotten Son with whom the Father is well pleased, very much determines how the Father responds to us. Oh, but God, I'm not depicting your Son in such a atrocious fashion. Yeah. You might as well. You've degraded him. I sent him to be your sin substitute, your Lord, your Savior. And you made him to be a religious leader. You made him to be a prophet amongst other prophets. You made him an alternative way to God. Uh, but you see the legitimacy of all other ways. You do not see the uniqueness of my son, but I do. You and I have discrepant points of view. Yours offends me. So I ask you, what will it be? What's your final answer? And when I say final, I mean final in every sense of the word. Do you know your answer to this singular question will seal your final destiny? Which will it be for you? Get off the fence. Will it be the blood of forgiveness? Or will it be the blood of judgment? Listen, listen, listen. If you say, oh God, for me, let it be the blood of forgiveness. I accept your sin's sacrifice to provide a covering for my sin. Oh, I will not degrade him. I will not dismiss him. I will not demean him. I will not minimize him. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Take control after all, you are master. If you make that decision, if you've made that decision, you have just avoided the blood of judgment. I'm not going to be in on Revelation 16. I don't care how much demons croak away. I heard the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, not demonic spirits. And he impressed upon me the terrible, irreversible nature of my sin. He impressed upon me how by sheer force of will I disobey God. I don't think like him. I don't speak like him. I don't act like him. I've sinned against him. 
I heard his voice tell me, Stuart, you owe me a debt. You've offended me. You've offended my holiness. I don't grade on a curve. I didn't give ten suggestions. These are commandments. They're non-negotiables. You have offended my holiness. And I heard him say, but Stuart, though your sins are as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. How do you make scarlet red sins look like white snow? You cover up the redness of your sin with the redness of the blood of the Lord Jesus' forgiveness. Do you realize how serious this is? You want to know a thought that pains us? Some have been to this church or another for years and years but remain unsaved. (gasps) Could I make it simple? What is your final answer? Is it the blood of forgiveness or are you willing to face the blood of judgment? Welcome to Megiddo. I'd rather have the Messiah who gets me out of it. Do you mind bowing with me for a second so we could give you a chance to discern? Not my voice, but maybe God's. No croaking frogs permitted in this place. Only the voice of the Holy Spirit of God, no counterfeits, but the authentic manifestation of the otherwise transcendent deity who has drawn nigh in the person of his own spirit. Maybe you could hear his still small voice. Maybe he's prodding you. Maybe he's saying, you're not right with me, are you? Things aren't right. In fact, you've come tonight. Haven't you, in an attempt to make it right, why don't you? Would you accept the blood of your of forgiveness offered for your sin? Say, come into my life, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Cleanse me. Make my sin white as snow. Change me from the inside out. That's the only way I'll be changed. Oh, God. I surely want to avoid the last battle. This gathering of millions in blood up to the bridles on horses. But more than wanting to avoid pain. Oh God, I want to be yours forevermore. I want to inherit heaven. I want it to be my home. I don't feel at home here. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. I'll no longer degrade you, blasphemy, blaspheme you, mock you, minimize you. Oh no. I can get aroused by those who attended Blasphemy Day, but I suppose in effect I'm no different if I don't accept you for who you claim to be. You are Lord of Lords. You are King of Kings. You are the mediator, and there is only one mediator between God and man. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, the God-man. Make me to be a man. Make me to be a woman of God. Thank you for doing so, Lord Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.